If you guys are here for the first time this morning, you're joining us in the midst of a, a study that we do just about every year at Tulsa Bible Church when we turn our attention to the Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, the um, monk, the lawyer who turned into a monk, who turned into a theological professor, nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany, launching what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And so we take just a little bit of time to talk about some of the events of the past, understand where we, we, where we stand and where we fall as God has orchestrated and guided the church sovereignly and perfectly according to his will. Uh, for this study, I, I do want to give you just a quick reference. There's a, a pastor by the name of Tommy Nelson, pastors at Denton Bible Church in Texas. I want to encourage you to go to dentonbible.org and download his church, church history series. He's got about uh, nine or 10 weeks on church history that is outstanding. Um, I've gone back and I've listened to several of those over and over again. I've even used a lot of Tommy Nelson stuff that he was delivering in a couple of his sermons on that Reformation time. So um, in great debt to him, and I just wanna make it very clear up front that he has done a, a magnificent job with church history. It took a longer series to go through it. I thought it was awesome, and it's something that I've always wanted to do in my own pastoral ministry here at TBC as well. Today, the church in America finds itself in a, in a midlife crisis. For most of its existence, think about the 1800s, coming into about nine, 1900 to 1915 or so, was the infancy stages of the American church. For most of the last century before that, the church was fighting a, a monster by the name of theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is a, a system, it's a response to the enlightenment, to the age of reason and rationality. All the great scientific thinkers of the world, the, uh, the Rene Descartes, the guys who said, I think, therefore I am, made everything about the human mind, our ability to rationalize, to think through things, to solve our own problems. From that emerged a response that there are some things in life that you just can't think through. There are some problems that go deeper than the material world into the spiritual. And the response was the Protestant liberalism. What Protestant liberalism tried to do was to anchor the Christian faith in a common human experience. Everything was drawn to feelings. When you heard the testimonies, of those who trusted Christ, it's just over and over just filled with experiential understanding. By the time you get to the 1900s, the church is dealing with that. This is the time when the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement arose in the United States, a movement that is primarily associated with independent personal feelings. The way that we respond to God is by his stirring in our hearts the feelings that we have in our guts when we listen to a song or or see certain scriptures. A famous theologian said of Protestant liberalism that it was void of the true doctrines, the, the life-giving doctrines that, that church had hang, hung on to for such a long time. That Christianity was a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a savior without a cross. During the infancy period of the church, 1900 to 1915, we were responding over and over again to the culture everybody else wanting to plug into the experience of what it meant to be a Christian. From 1915 to 1930, we entered what's called the toddler stage. 
This is where the fighting fundamentals really gained some ground. They started to fight some battles that, as you look back on that time in history in the church, really weren't worth fighting that hard for. And they lost a lot of battles. The exclamation point is put on the Scopes Monkey Trial, where the church tried to argue against the universities and using secular tactics that they never really had to do in the first place because faith comes by hearing and it's beyond rationality. It's beyond science and anything that the universities can throw at us. This was the time when we saw the Harvards and the Yales of the world go from Bible college and seminaries to liberal institutions of secular humanism and thinking beyond what we could imagine. It's brought about the uh, higher education that we experience today throughout America. From 1930 to 1950, the church went from being a toddler to being a troubled teen. What do we do with this fundamentalist movement? Well, here's what the response was. I know scripture better than anybody else knows it before me. And if I go into my study and figure out all those texts all by myself, I can figure out Christianity better than anybody else. It was the epitome of arrogance for one man individually tucked in his study with his Bible to come up with all kinds of crazy things associated with uh, somewhat of a heart or a foundation of Christianity. The fundamentalists developed a, me and my Bible are better than you in your history, and I don't need anybody else from a negative standpoint. From 1950 to the 2000s, we saw an incredible growth in the church. Post-World War II, the good guys won. There was a great turn in the tide of history in the hope of mankind. Churches grew by the thousands. You had their first megachurches that arose coming out of the 50s and the 60s, the Jesus movement. The hippies were turning to Christ in the bunches, and it was incredible. But when they did, they stepped away from some of the historical creeds, the things that we just heard about on the slideshow. They stepped away from the orthodox tradition of the faith that had been passed down to them. If churches were strong on their history, if they hung on tight to the universal truths that are believed by everywhere, all, at all times, always, this orthodox Christianity that has been passed down from us, from the apostles to the church fathers and then to the generations of the church even today, if they held true to those things, those churches survived with a depth and a clarity on the gospel and theology that is different than everybody else. If they let go of them, it became more about how many people you could attract with different methods and entertainment in order to draw a crowd. And if you could build it, they would come. If you could entertain them, they would keep on coming. And you developed a Christianity that was, led to a midlife crisis. What is the church? If our church doesn't grow to be a thousand members, are we doing what we should be doing? Does that even matter in terms of the New Testament? Who gets to decide? You've got the rise of denominations, everyone going in all kinds of different directions, picking and choosing their Christianity, holding on to verses that they like very tightly, not holding on to those verses that they don't like. And it's a, it's a me-centered Christianity. We need to be careful. Just because a church is growing doesn't mean it's biblical. Today, the church is in midlife crisis. It's struggling to find an identity. Some are abandoning the faith altogether. They see big church splits. They see chaos. 
They see the stuff that's happening even in the Presbyterian church, the Methodist church that's split off now until three different sects because of all the issues of, of sexuality and gender. Church leaders going in different directions. I'm with this person, they're with that person. What do we do with these properties? What we need is an understanding of the church that is tethered tightly to Scripture, also tightly to the historic Christian faith that's been passed down to us. The fathers who died for the faith, the truth of theology that's been at the heart and soul of Christianity since Jesus and the apostles gave it to us. Those things that we understand from the 66 Protestant books of the canon of Scripture. What we need to do as a church today is to go back. We need to reclaim a forgotten faith. In many, many ways, we need a retro Christianity. And so that's the reason why we're doing this study today. And it all starts in 1517 with a mad German monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived at a time when the doctrine of justification by faith was no longer part of the church vernacular. It was replaced by the non-biblical doctrine of indulgences. Catholics were selling indulgences in order to raise funds for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. One of them was this man, but goes by the name of Johann Tetzel. He was charismatic and he was convincing. He was tall, tan, and he was terrific. And here's what he did. He deliberately appeals to the superstitions of the poor and the less educated. He enters towns with long parades, bells ringing, and banners waving. He was a religious con man, and some people saw right through him. He had catchy little jingles. It went something like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs meaning that if you would simply give to the church for the, be, for the building of St. Peter's Basilica, your relatives, those who have died before you, could be rescued out of purgatory by your faithful giving. One nobleman saw right through it. His name was Frederick, the Elector of Saxony. He wouldn't allow Tetzel to set up shop inside the city gates. He did allow him to stay outside the gates of a city called Wittenberg. To Luther... Tetzel represented everything that he hated and could not stand about the Catholic Church. And in order to reform the church back to right doctrines, as Tetzel sets up shop and sells these indulgences, he nails his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Tetzel, two times Luther's age, responds with 106 antitheses which Luther's followers quickly burned, just like they did many other things. In 1519, excuse me, Luther accepts a debate challenge from a guy by the name of John Eck. He was a Catholic professor in Leipzig. Luther wrote that cardinals are no more fitted to handle the case of indulgences in Christian theology than a donkey is to play the harp. Luther had a way with, <laughs> with words. This guy is very entertaining to actually read, so... If you catch anything about Luther, take the time and read it. At stake were questions that would earmark the Reformation and what we consider as Protestant theology. One question is this, how are people saved? How do you get to have everlasting life with a perfect God? Where does authority lie in the church? Is authority found in men or is it found ultimately in scripture? What is the church? 
What is the Christian life? It was before his debate with John Eck that Luther had his tower experience. Have you found Romans chapter one? Look down at Romans one verse 16. Romans 1, 16 says this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther could not get past that phrase in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. He studied it, he worked it over in his thoroughly Catholic theology, and here's what he came up with. I hated that righteousness of God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God saying, as if it weren't enough that sinners should be eternally damned through original sin with all kinds of misfortunes laid upon them by the Old Testament law. And yet, God adds sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and even brings his wrath and righteousness to bear through it. Thus, I drove myself mad. And here's what Luther did, something that was very distinct from the theological professors and the monks before him. He opened the Greek New Testament and he started reading his Bible over and over again, looking for every mention of the righteousness of God. In the Old Testament Hebrew, in the New Testament Greek, he studied it, he read it night and day. He was bothered by this phrase, the righteousness of God. And then by a a miraculous work of the Spirit in his heart and through his understanding, he finally began to understand that righteousness from God was a passive gift given upon faith in Christ. And he immediately felt like he was born again. The shackles were loosed and he was free. He had everlasting life, not because of what he was doing for the Catholic Church, his disciplines, his penance, all the things that he was trying to conjure up in his own power, he had righteousness of God because of what Christ did for him on the cross. A light came into his heart. He trusted the truth of the gospel. He would never be the same. Salvation was not by works, not by indulgences, but through God's work through Christ on the cross. He saw final authority in the scriptures, not in the pope. And he asked John Eck, who is the pope that I should listen to him when he doesn't know what the scriptures say in and of themselves? John Eck couldn't answer the simplest questions of what does the scripture say? Luther could. And he was aided by an invention at this time, and we would chalk this up as the providence of God. Just less than 100 years earlier, a guy by the name of Johannes Gutenberg invented in 1440 the printing press. Luther used it to his advantage. He would publish an address to the German nobility, the Babylonian captivity of the church, telling the German people that the popes and their lavish lifestyles and their licentious living is not according to scripture, and they are not teaching the truth, and he wrote a pamphlet on the freedom of the Christian. You can get it today, it's a short little thing, and read it in about an afternoon. Every pamphlet, every book, every article was in defiance of the papacy and what the Catholic Church had become. Finally, Leo X had enough, and he issued what was called a papal bull. 
Bulla in Latin, it means seal. It was an official seal of the Pope, and it said something like this. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has risen in the vineyard of God by the name of Martin Luther. Luther said, you burn my books, I'll burn yours. He took the papal bull and he burned it right there in Wittenberg, and he made sure everybody saw it. He didn't care about the Pope. January 15, 21, he was excommunicated by Charles V, and he was summoned to the Diet of Worms. The Catholic authorities said to Luther as he was making a defense of appealing to Scripture and the truth that he was reading in Scripture, they said, Luther, you sound a lot like some other people that have come before you. John Hus, Wycliffe. You sound a lot like these other guys that say, they're saying they're reading the Scripture for themselves as well. Guess what happened to them? We burned them. They died. They were tortured and they were persecuted for promoting what they believed about the authority and about the word of God. Luther knew that he would either have to recant or die. And he gives his famous statement. Historians debate the accuracy of this statement, but some kind of paraphrase, something like this. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot will not recant, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Why didn't Luther die? He had good friends in high places. Frederick of Saxony, the guy that said, Tetzel, you stay out of the city gates, was a friend of Luther. He kidnapped him, he sent him to a castle in Wartburg, Germany. And it was there as an exile, in hiding, that Luther would do another thing that's never been done in the history of the world. He took the Latin copy of the Bible and he translated it into German for his German peasants and friends to read on their very own, to grasp the truth of God for themselves. And it's an amazing thing that happens, and this, I don't mean to be like yeah, super uh, negative or forceful here, but what began to happen in Germany was this. Catholics started reading their Bible. Catholics started getting saved because of what they're reading, realizing that they had never understood the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture for themselves. Luther is a hero. He returns from Wartburg to Wittenberg and he does at least seven things. The first thing he did was he kicked out the bishop of the Catholic church. And he said, you're out of here. This is going to be an autonomous Lutheran church. He established his own church based on the reading of the scriptures. And actually, it, it functioned a lot like the Catholic church that was established before him. They could read the scriptures in, for themselves. The church was now autonomous. Luther abolished celibacy. He took a whole bunch of Catholic priests and put them together with Catholic nuns. You guys can be married. Why don't they do that today? I still don't know. I'm wondering about this. Luther himself married uh, Catherine von Bora. And in his writings, he talks about the, uh, the interesting dynamics of marriage. He did something that was never, ever done before. He performed the mass in German instead of Latin. The German people began to hear in their own language 
the significance and the meaning of words. He did another thing that's never been done before, at least in his time. He preached. He opened the word of God and he preached the word. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word in season and out of season. He took the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy and he gave them to the German people. And it was a church like they have never experienced it before. The Catholic Church didn't preach the gospel. They administered the sacraments. And the sacraments were the means of grace. So that when you took the body and the blood of Christ, it was as if Jesus was being sacrificed over and over again for your sins that you committed since the last time you took the body and the blood of Christ. They were now hearing that the gospel comes by faith in Christ. And hearing by faith, not doing something. He denied that communion was the actual body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation. He argued for consubstantiation. He changed the dynamics of the sacraments. Luther did another amazing thing. We experienced it just seconds, moments ago. He let the people sing. And he taught them songs in their very own common vernacular in German. Why did he do it? They didn't know theology. They didn't know the scriptures. And so he put theology and he put the scriptures to hymns. Where did he get the melodies for his hymns? He got them from the taverns. He put them to drinking songs. A mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> A bulwark never failing. Listen, these, these tunes that Luther put together, you sung them with a stein in your hand. That was just what he did. And he brought it to the culture and he taught the people. Why do you think the hymns are so laced with deep, deep theology that have endured through the ages? The Germans were hearing things that they have never heard before and they were singing about it because they were so taken back by the truth of what they were hearing. Why wasn't Luther killed after he returned to Wittenberg? Again, the providence of God. You ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? The Muslim Turks had invaded Vienna. It was the siege of Vienna in 1529. I believe there's been a couple sieges of Vienna throughout their history. Charles V needed German princes for battle because 100,000 Muslims were gathered around the city and attacking. And he held tight with 21,000 German princes, nobilities fighting off the Muslim Turks. By the time the war was over, it was about a two-week siege. Charles V returned to Luther, to everything that was happening. He called Luther a heretic. He said that this Lutheranism thing stops. We are not going any further with it. In 1529, they gathered together at the Diet of Spire in Spire, Germany. And the German prince said, after Charles V called Luther a heretic, and what he was doing is anti-biblical, something to be stopped, and he would be persecuted for the faith, a guy stood up and said, uh, excuse me, no, sir, I protest. That was the first, the very first mention of a Protestant. That's the beginning of the Protestant faith and pro inspired Germany. Luther's influence was felt all over Europe. And Protestants have been identified by many different things and many different denominations have sprung up in evangelical Protestantism, but at least they held on to this. 
The scriptures are the sole source of truth and the final authority from God. If we have any questions about church polity, function, the mass, services, singing, hymns, preaching the word of God, we're going to the word of God to answer those questions, not to any man. Secondly, they believe that the doctrine of justification was by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That salvation could not be earned depending on how many masses you went to. There was nothing that you could do physically to earn the gift of, of salvation from God. You simply trusted in Christ and his death on the cross and you were declared right even though you were wrong and you were a sinner. Thirdly, they held to the universal priesthood of all believers. There shouldn't be a huge distinction between the clergy and the laity. The laity can understand the scriptures for themselves, and they can be just as theological, just as oriented to discipleship, and just as evangelical as anybody else. And so he established the priesthood of all believers. Again, Luther's authority was felt all throughout Europe. Finally, it reached a genius by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli, is a humanist philosopher who goes to bed at night reading Erasmus, humanist philosophy and the Greek classics. Like Luther, he presented not 95 theses against the Catholic Church, he presented in 67. Zwing Zwingli comes along, he hears the words of Luther, he understands what's happening in this Protestant movement, he starts closing monasteries, he destroys the images related to the Catholic Church and he bans all pilgrimages that would go to Rome. It was during a time of Lent, 40 days before Easter, the year was 1522, that Zwingli is invited to the home of a printer that is in his city. And he sits down and at the time of Lent, nobody ate meat if you were in the Catholic Church. The printer puts on a plate and slides before Ulrich Zwingli a piece of sausage. It was called the sausage conspiracy of the church. Zwingli didn't touch the sausage because he didn't want to infringe on anybody's freedom. He goes on the next Sunday to preach a sermon called The Choice and the Freedoms of Food instead. Whereas the Catholics served the mass, Zwingli taught the scriptures expositionally. Zwingli opened the gospel of Matthew and he just started to teach through it word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. The centerpiece of the service under, Z under Zwingli was the preaching of the word of God. It was the preaching of the gospel. He was the best speaker, he was the best entertainment in town, he used humor, he used embellishments, and he made a ton of converts. As people were reading the gospel of Matthew, they were trusting Jesus left and right. Two of those converts were extremely influential, Conrad Grebel and Felix Manns. They were radicals. These three guys, Zwingli, Grebel, and Manns, gathered together to form one of the very first small groups after and in the Reformation. And here's what they studied. The New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the Latin Bible, and other classic literature from the Greco-Roman period. They studied, they disagreed, they debated, they formalized their gathering into what became the Swiss Brethren Movement, if you've ever heard of it. These followers of Zwingli 
Conrad Grebel and, and Manns became more radical than Zwingli himself. Grebel and Manns looked through the Bible and saw no instance of something called infant baptism. And so on January 17th, 1525, a public debate was held between Grebel and Manns versus Zwingli on infant baptism, and Zwingli won. He won because he was more charismatic, he won because he would make his points through the text, and he won because these other two guys just weren't as well-respected and known throughout the town. Grebel had to decide in Manns what they were gonna do because all infants were to be baptized in their city within eight days. And if they didn't baptize them, they were exiled. What would you do? What would you do if somebody said, baptize your infant, or you're out? Would you be able to do it? Grebel had an infant daughter, Isabella. What was he gonna do? Four days later, January 21st, they gathered together illegally in the home of Felix Manns. You ever know who the first, first Baptist is? The first guy ever baptized by immersion in the, after this uh, Catholic and Reformation period time? It was a guy by the name of George Blaurock, and upon the confession of his faith, he asked to be baptized. This is January 21st in Switzerland. Where are you gonna go baptize at that point in time? Nowhere. You're gonna have to break the ice, and you're gonna have to get dipped in some really cold water. And meeting together in a barn, that's exactly what they did. George Blaurock was the first Baptist initiating what was called the Anabaptist movement or the Radical Reformation. Around the same time, a man by the name of Menno Simons heard about what was happening up north in the Netherlands. Menno Simons probably sounds a lot like another denomination you might have heard of called the Mennonites. He gave birth to the Mennonites and they saw not only was infant baptism not in the scriptures, but also they saw a huge division between politics and the church. They saw Jesus not really engaging that much in politics, and so they said, you know what? We're gonna separate completely away from it. In fact, we're gonna be passive in our stance toward the government, toward war, toward everything else. Just let us be. We're gonna be pacifists. The Mennonites are regularly associated with a pacifist uh, mentality towards politics and towards war. A bunch of those guys came to America and to Canada, but particularly a group of them settled in Pennsylvania. We call them the Pennsylvania Dutch, and they rallied around a leader by the name of Jacob Amman. You ever heard of the Amish? This is where the Amish people came. They were radical Anabaptists from Zwingli, Grebel, and Mance. They didn't care about being radical. In fact, they preferred it. So even today, you can go see these guys in horse and buggy, avoiding the modern technology and the culture of the day and holding on to their scriptures. The council in Zurich was so enraged against this baptism for believers that a handful of years later that they passed an edict. Anybody who practices baptism, the punishment is going to be death by drowning. You wanna baptize people, guess what? We'll baptize you and we'll keep you down until you're dead. The first person to be thrown into the lake of Zurich was Felix Manns. Died for the faith. 
They strapped a pole around him. They tied his hands behind his knees. This guy wanted to be baptized. We'll baptize you. The last words of Felix Manns were, into your hands, O God, I commend my spirit. He said that he left when they confiscated his home and his property. They said that he left a, a testimony of his life through an eight, 18 stanza hymn that he had wrote. After Felix, 5,000 other Baptists were killed. There is, anybody here associated with Baptists, Southern Baptists? You guys raise your hand. Oh, Lord bless you, there's a place for you at TBC, I promise you. They just, a Bible church is just a Baptist church with a good website, so you're, you're in a good place, all right? Even in America, Baptists were unlike. You, you know um, Roger Williams, the first uh, New England Baptist preacher? There's a, there's a home, you can go up there, you can tour it, you can see all about it. He's associated as the founder of the Baptist Church in America. He founded a religious haven against persecution. They couldn't even stand the Baptists in America when they landed here. And so they sent them to their own colony. It was called Rhode Island. They called it the Sewer of New England. It was the Licentious Republic, or Rogue Island. This is where you lived if you went rogue from the faith that was supposed to be passed down to you. The Baptists were way ahead of their time. Many, many died in the faith because of it. Most Baptists want to trace their lines all the way back to John the Baptist. Get over yourself. You can't do it, all right? It's a little bit later than that, but you still have quite a history, so welcome to TBC. We had Germany and Luther, a German Reformation, the beginning of Lutheranism. You had Zwingli in Switzerland, a Swiss Reformation, and a radical reformation. The Baptists and the Anabaptists came out of it. There's one more guy on the corner of Switzerland and even into the border of France in a little city called Geneva that we need to talk about before we get to the English Reformation. John Calvin. Calvin is schooled at the University of Paris. Like Luther, he studied law after his father died. He switched to the classics and he learned Greek and the biblical languages. Although alarmed by Luther's wild boar mentality and the way that he spoke out against the Catholic Church, Calvin was sympathetic to him. He agreed with him. He was reading the text of Scripture for himself, and he said, you know what, this Luther guy seems to be spot on. In Scripture, he finds the true essence of salvation, and he writes, there is only one haven of salvation that is left open for our souls, and that is the mercy of God in Christ. We are saved by grace, not by our merits, not by works. In 1533, Calvin helps the rector of the university deliver his inaugural address, and the whole address is against the abuses of the Catholic Church. There is nothing in the Catholic Church of faith there is nothing of grace, there is nothing of justifications, and the university officials are so much in an uproar that they chase him out of there. Calvin and his buddy, they flee, and they get out. They return to Paris one year later, where he finds even greater danger. King Francis I ordered mass imprisonments and executions of anybody associating themselves with Protestant Lutheranism. The burning at the stake wasn't enough. So King Francis I ordered that people be burned and heightened from the flames so that it would take longer for them to die. 
as they hung over it. Calvin flees in an, as an exile to Strasbourg. He sees death coming. He doesn't want any of it. In exile, he writes something called the Institutes of Christian Religion. Today, one of the most widely read publications and translations of Christian theology that we have. Calvin didn't have guys to quote. He didn't have other resources he could go to. He puts out the Institutes of Christian Religion, and they spread like wildfire, second only to the Bible among Protestants. In 1536, Calvin arrives at a city called Geneva, where he meets a man named William Farrell. I've got Farrells in my family. I don't know if this guy was related to me. I don't like him. He started the process and asked Calvin to run his city, Geneva. He started the reforms and the Protestant initiatives that had begun by Luther and, and Zwingli and the likes, but he needed somebody to help run this city. Calvin turns down the offer. He says this, I'm not interested in running cities. I'm interested in studying scripture. So go find somebody else. And for a year, he doesn't, doesn't do anything. Finally, Pharaoh just keeps plotting and poking at Calvin, and he says, okay, I'll, I'll give in. I will help you. He agrees, and he goes, and he runs this city of Geneva where you'll see the slide, the head of the slide of the sermon series, those four guys standing there as a monument to the reformers of the Protestant movement. 20 bucks to anybody who can name all those guys. Any takers? <laughs> That's, that deserves five bucks, that was funny. That guy's Calvin, right there. Luther, Germany. Zwingli, right there. This guy is the, the Scottish preacher, the voice of a thousand trumpets, John Knox. Those, those four guys revolutionized Christianity across the world. You can go there and see that monument even today. After initially turning down the offer to lead Geneva, Switzerland. Like Jesus, he comes and he is initially welcomed. And then they run him out of there because they don't like how he's leading the city. The people run him out of town. So Calvin returns to Strasbourg. Three years later, he is pushed to give Geneva another chance. And so he comes back three years later and he picks up preaching right where he left off. Right where he stopped preaching three years earlier, he just picks up right in the text and keeps on going. He, have, he has bitter enemies in the city of Geneva who are libertarians. They don't like Calvin because Calvin is very strict. He's a rule maker. He says, if you're going to be in the city of Geneva, there's going to be no dancing. There's going to be no gambling. In fact, you guys can't have any fun whatsoever if you're going to live in this city. The libertarians don't really like that. Calvin orders for food laws. He puts all kinds of prohibitions in, in place. In the strict city laws... He won't give over on them to anybody who wants to argue about it. He starts executing people who don't follow his rules and his laws. Who does that sound like? Just maybe 100 years earlier. It's only like a Catholic church. Calvin started abusing his own authority, and he puts a guy to the stake by the name of Servetus. He was a philosopher, he was a great thinker, he was a great debater of theology. And when he, when he killed this guy, everybody thought that Servetus came back simply to make Calvin mad. When he killed him, it was terrible. 
Everybody began to question what was really behind Calvin. Calvin's Geneva has some, has some ugly, ugly truth to it. He had a clear conscience about all of the things that he did. He said everybody that he burned at the stake was burned to the glory of God. The reformer, reformers were all radicals, faithful followers of Christ. They all had major, major issues. They were all sinners. They were all imperfect. None of them were Jesus. If anybody asks me if I'm a Calvinist, I don't associate with people. I so associate with God. I just say I'm a Christian. I debate with their theology and we can talk through it. That's great. Hold on to Calvinist theology, wonderful. I would rather be associated with Christ, who's not associated with sin. Calvin's theology would go north to the Netherlands. A professor by the name of Jacobus Arminius, recognized as an influential theologian almost immediately. As he studied Romans, he came to Calvin's teaching through the Institutes on predestination. Arminius says, I don't agree with everything that Calvin is saying. If Luther's doctrine was justification by faith, Calvin's doctrine was the sovereignty of God. Everything hinges on the sovereignty of God, on his choice, on his predestination for election and everything that follows after. Calvin said, no human being fallen in sin chooses God. God chooses us. No one finds Jesus, Jesus finds us. Arminius disagreed. He said, why does there have to be an either or, God or you? Why can't God's sovereignty and human responsibility be more compatible? Why can't they both exist at the same time? Arminian was accused of being a Pelagian, which means Pelagian didn't think that mankind was so sinful that they couldn't grasp and reach out for God in their sinful estate. He was accused of, of having a weak view of personal sin. He defends himself against Pelagius. He develops a semi-Pelagian outlook. It is possible for the sovereignty of God and for human free will to coexist and to be compatible, is what he says, and so he survives. Calvin's followers, including Theodore Beza, make it a glorious fight between the Calvinists and the Arminiists. In fact, Arminius is from Holland. He's from the Netherlands. The Calvins put together five points of theology and they name it Tulip. You don't believe in our Calvinist doctrine? Here it is right before you, a bunch of tulips. You windmill, wood-wearing, clogged people, just get on board with the Calvinist theology. The T was total depravity, the U was unconditional election, the L was limited atonement, the I, irresistible grace, and the P was perseverance of the saints. The Dutch people couldn't take that system and agree with it, and either can I. And you're gonna have to do some research for yourself and figure this out because it's not a hill that I'm gonna die on. But if you don't take one of those points, if you don't agree with one of them, the whole system goes to rye. I don't think you can be a four-point Calvinist. I don't. I come from a school that claims that they're four-point Calvinists. I paid good money to go to that school and to probably become a four-point Calvinist. It's so tight, it's logical. One step moves to the next step, moves to the next step. The hardest point in there to grasp is the L, it's limited atonement. That Christ only died for the sins of those who would eventually trust him. 
You got a lot of passages in scripture that says that God died for the sins of the whole entire world. I don't see limited atonement in scriptures. Neither do I see the advantages or the point of preaching the gospel to people if only those who are chosen for election are gonna become saved in the first place. I can't give the gospel message to somebody with a pure and right heart if I don't think that they can respond to the truth of the gospel by the Holy Spirit's working in their heart. If you're a Calvinist and if you, if you do agree with them, all of my smarter friends are Calvinists. And they're way smarter than me. And they have been debating on this thing for the last 500 years. They haven't solved it yet. I'm not gonna solve it. You're not gonna solve it. This doesn't need to be a hill to die on at the end of the day. In TBC, if you're a Calvinist or if you're a non-Calvinist, if you're a semi-Pelagian, if you're somewhere in between, if you're a Molinist and you got a different perspective, Lord bless you, welcome. Let's talk about it. We can have fellowship together. It's not a hill to die on, but if you don't take limited atonement, you gotta start backtracking to unconditional election, okay? Does that still hold to be true? The whole system is so, it's so tight. My only criticism against Calvinism is this. It gets to abandoning the tensions and the often confusing and troubling tensions of scripture, and it tries to explain them with reason rather than explaining them with the truth of God's word. I would rather just let those confusing aspects of scripture be confusing. I think God put them into the scripture for us to wrestle with because we are finite human beings. And the God of the Bible wouldn't be worth worshiping if we could figure out everything about him, this side of glory. That's personally just where I stand, but at the end of the day, nobody's gonna ask you if you're a Calvinist at the gates of heaven. They're gonna ask you if you trusted Christ in salvation. Again, it's not a hill to die on. I love to talk about it. And I do wanna say, all of my very much smarter friends are all Calvinists, and so I put that in, in my pocket. And I hold this stuff with a lot, a lot of humility. I, I really, I wrestle with it, wrestle with it. The English Reformation was totally different than the German Reformation, the Swiss Reformation, and the Radical Reformation. The difference about the English Reformation was, was that things began to get not so much theological and biblical, things began to get very political in England. Uh, what England is going to try to do is they're gonna to try to preserve the rituals and the liturgy of the Catholic faith, but they're gonna integrate a Protestant doctrine and you're gonna have a lot of Protestants that hold true to their faith and think that Protestants are way, way different than Catholics that are gonna get really mad about that. You can't find an Elizabethan settlement in the Protestant text of scripture. You can't be half Catholic and half Protestant. In fact, some people are so adamant and they want to preserve the purity of the Protestant truth of faith and the doctrines that they believe that we know them as a group of people called the what? The Puritans. The Puritans were so adamant that you could not sit on the fence of the Catholic and Protestant divide, that they separated themselves. And they pursued a pietistic Puritan faith that was beyond anything that was offered in their country. They were willing to go a long, long way to make sure that they could find it. 
Those are the guys that landed in America. Those are the pilgrims. There was 100 of them that first came. Eventually there was 20 and 30,000 that were fleeing the political nonsense of the church in England and coming for religious freedom and religious toleration. Here's the mistake, just to give you a little preview of next week. The Puritans were no different than the Catholics in their function. They tried to establish a theocracy with human people. They tried to legislate morality, and you can't. They tried to legislate salvation, and you can't do that either. The only way people are gonna get saved in here is if the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, hearing the truth of the gospel and responding to it in faith. You can't create a government system that's going to do that, I'm sorry. It's not gonna work. The Puritans thought that they could, and here's what happened. They had teenagers. I'm serious. They created all these laws that said, you can't serve in government, you can't be an officer in the church, you can't do anything unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And many of them, even past the age of teenagers, as they were reared in the church, as they grew up in the church, Christian doctrine, they weren't believers. And they had completely immoral lifestyles. And so they began to abandon some of their laws. And they said, okay, you can come to church and you can vote and you can be a government official, but you can't take the Lord's Supper. That's where they landed on it. And eventually you got something in Salem called the Salem Witch Trials. Because a witch from Haiti came over to the new land and to America and a Puritan adopted her into their family. And after the Salem witch trials, you got about 20 witches that are dead. They gave you a test to figure out if you were a witch or not. If they held you underwater for five minutes and you died, you weren't a witch. If they held you underwater for five minutes and you didn't die, you were a witch. They killed 20 of them, two men and a dog before it was all said and done. And the Puritan dream came to an end. Folks, the Reformation teaches us a lot of things. One of the biggest things it teaches us, the Spirit works like the wind. It blows where it wants to. You cannot control the Holy Spirit. You cannot make converts of men, humanly speaking. All you can do is preach the gospel and pray and ask for it to fall on hearts. You can't create a nation of Christians. It's not gonna happen. Because every single person is born into this world a sinner, separated from God. You can't have enough homeschooling, you can't have enough of an ivory tower that you are gonna save your kids from the sinfulness of the world. It ain't gonna happen. The sooner we can let go of some of that stuff and trust God and start praying and bring life and value into these, into these lives, the better we're gonna be for it. Reformation is a, is a great time in Christian history. It's taught a lot of things that we should do. It's taught us a lot about authority in the church, teaching the scriptures. It's taught us a lot about the truth of, of, of doctrine, of, of justification by faith. It's taught us a lot of things what not to do. What we're not gonna do is we're not gonna try to control people and start burning people because they're sinners, because 
If that was the case, everyone in this room is dead. We're all gone before we even have a chance. We operate off the grace of God in our parenting, in our preaching, in our relationships, in our friendships. We ask God to work through those things. We celebrate freedom in the Christian life. The culture is something that God creates for us to enjoy. If he created it, it's not evil. It becomes evil when we disorient it into something that God didn't create it to be. It's a great, great point of of church history, and so I want to invite you to come back and, and learn a little bit about Bloody Mary, um, Jane Seymour, talk about kings that can't have male children and so we just keep on going through the women, we kill two of them until they provide us with a male heir, there's no male heir and so now you've got a lot of angry women on the throne of England, they start killing Protestants by the hundreds, they don't even care about it, then we name drinks after them. This is a We don't talk a lot about the history of the church in England because by the time the Puritans and the Pilgrims get here, we're we're so centered on America. There are things that happen in England that affect us. There's an Anglican movement that came about. There's an Episcopalian movement that came about. And a lot of people are abandoning the evangelical church today like Tulsa Bible Church and they're going back to a Catholic version of church because they're done with the entertainment. They're done with the the big circus and the show, and they want something that's more reverent and more liturgical. They don't know what they're abandoning, and they don't know what they're embracing and going into. So that's why we teach on church history at Tulsa Bible Church. I pray that you come back and listen to it. Please go on DentonBible.org and download this uh, church history series. It's it's a wonderful series, too. I want to give a lot, a lot of credit to Tommy Nelson. He's the one that instilled a lot of this into me and my professors at Dallas Seminary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, just the chance to talk about our history. When all of us in this room go back and shake our family trees, there's a lot of things that fall out. A lot of good, a lot of bad. It's the same with the history of the church. But Lord, our heart and our desire is to have a church that is anchored upon the orthodox tradition of the faith that's been passed down to us from generation to generation. Our heart is to hold true to the, to the theology of justification by faith, to see salvation as a pure gift through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, to hold the scriptures as the final authority for all faith and practice and anything that we can ever say and do will ultimately take us back to the authority and the truth of God's word to hold on to the priesthood of all believers, that we can know the truth, we can study it for ourselves, we can evangelize, we can reach other people with this great truth that has not only changed our hearts, but will change theirs as well. Give us a passion to be a church that is solidly grounded in theology, in scripture, in truth, and in Jesus Christ, that is informed by the generations that have gone before us. We thank you deeply for what they have provided. We pray all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.